Senator Barack Obama of Illinois will be the next president of the United States. And we are calling it iPhone. Leonardo DiCaprio. Kane Williamson under pressure does the business. Oh, they say this will never happen. Yeah. Okay, we're recording this at uh, eight minutes to one. It's the 8th of December, 2020. I'm here with Dave Johnson. Dave, how you going? Good, thanks, Kyle. Nice to catch up. Great to have you on, mate. Um, Dave has got a lot of different titles, really. I suppose the one most relevant at the moment is he's on the turf team at Bay Oval Cricket Ground, which is one of the premier venues in the country. Um, but he's also known for his, his work in the farming industry. Um, also, his coaching prowess is is quite high up there in the region, um, so it's great to have you on, Dave. No problem, I appreciate it. It's lovely to be sitting here looking at over the Oval as we talk. Yeah, we're up here in um, the commentary booth at Bay Oval, so we've got a great little picture of the surrounds here, and as they um, build up for the Boxing Day Test, it's the next big one for you, isn't it? Just indeed, yes. We've um, obviously just had a couple of T20s. Uh, which unfortunately were rain effect the second one and the um, and then also following a four day game between New Zealand A and the West Indies which was a, a pretty good match and New Zealand dominated really from ball one and uh, came away with a win. Dave, I just want to start um, with a bit of your early early cricket, how you got into that. Can you tell me um, how old you were and what kind of region you, you began to play? So our family was from the Waikato and um, we lived in Matamata on a dairy farm uh, just north of Matamata. And there's actually cricket in my family way back. My grandfather was one of nine boys and two girls, and they all played cricket. So they way back then they had their own cricket team that played the occasional game together. My father was a uh, prominent cricketer in the Waikato region, and in a matter matter, and I just took the game up as a matter of course. Really, we we lived on a dairy farm, and uh, lucky enough to have a a cricket net and a tennis court on our property, where we were able to. Uh, practice lots and my dad spent a lot of time throwing balls to me as a youngster and I went to a little primary school in, at a place called Narua and uh, we had a cricket team there courtesy of my dad coming down and looking after the team and then eventually we went to Matamata College where uh, cricket became a pretty big part of my existence. Um, I suppose what I kind of want to touch a little bit more on as well is um, I didn't understand it was quite unique playing cricket in the Waikato back then. Um, some different sorts of surfaces you're playing on and Correct. the style so, of the game. Yeah, so um, when, when I first started playing, I started playing senior cricket in Matamata. We had an eight-team competition and it was um, it was pretty strong in the Waikato region. And we played on various surfaces. We eventually had clay, work, clay wickets with a grass surface, but prior to that we used to have a uh, thing called a a uh, flex mat and it was a um, it was a woven mat surface which we would take out onto the onto the um, surface we were playing and roll it out and pin it down. It's actually a similar surface to what's played in many grounds in the Netherlands now, I believe. So we I was sort of raised on a flex mat surface and and it was um, provided good bounce and it provided a bit of turn and um, we had this eight team competition and it was very strong as I mentioned and we used to play, we dairy, it was a dairy farming region and we'd play, started quarter to ten on a Saturday morning and we'd be finished by 3.30 because we had to get back and milk cows so it was kind of <laughs> like a, it was a, and um, funnily enough even even 
would get would get results even in that time. You know, it didn't seem like a very long time to play the game, but it was enough to get results mostly. And a lot of a lot of that was to do with how we played. We we aimed to get results and understood a little bit about the game and how it worked. I have it on good authority that you were known to to uh, to tamper with these flax mattings no, in the second innings. I think that's a little unfair. We had a very good spinner in our club team, um, and uh, I used to field in short leg and. Certainly, if you loosen the mat off a little bit, it, it did help the tune. But no, that's—I think that's a rumor, and I certainly wouldn't like to confirm or deny. Actually, I don't know where you heard that from. How did you go personally in that competition? A little bit of success, from what I understand. Yeah, I started playing it when I was very young, as the third form or whatever year that is now, um, year nine, and uh, I had pretty good success at a young age and made uh, actually made. So, Matamata was part of the Thames Valley region, and I managed to make a debut for. Thames Valley when I was 15, went to a Northern Districts tournament, it was, it was a major eye-opener because the first game we played was against Bay of Plenty, we played two-day games and they had a guy named Bob Kunis opening the bowling who was a retired ex-international and Hira Anka who was playing the ND at that time, an opening bowler and it was, uh, to say the least, it was quite petrifying to see these guys running from that distance and bowl quickly but that was my introduction to representative cricket. Um. How old were you when you were sort of involved in a bit more representative cricket? So I played from the representative, Matamata representative side, and we played teams like Cambridge and uh, Morons from, was in a competition called the Court Cup. And then from there we um, had, had the opportunity, you got selected for for um, ND representative sides. Um, at that stage the only representative side that was selected was a secondary school side. And I made that side when I was reasonably young, and then we were playing a game against Auckland, and I think I was maybe 16, and they had a captain of the Auckland team at that stage was a guy by the name of Jeff Crow, so um, he played for Auckland Grammar at the time, and then I made the the um, Northern Districts under 20 team, what was called the Braben team, and uh, managed to make that side and. Uh, had a uh, successful tournament and actually made a New Zealand team which played against Australia at Seddon Park so um, it was a bit of a highlight as a youngster to get that opportunity and play beside players who uh, went on and represented New Zealand in various sports including Bruce Edgar and who was obviously an outstanding black cap, Peter Webb who played for New Zealand and also Auckland and Clive Curry was in the side who became an all black fullback so there's a bit of a mixture there and Mark Bracewell was the opening bowler. He at that stage was from Tauranga, but we had gone to university in Dunedin, and he was playing for Otago. And he um, was in that New Zealand side, and and uh, his son now was um, captain of the Wellington side as a Michael Bracewell as an off spinner and a, and a top order batsman. So yeah, we played with a number of good players. And I think Stu McCullum, Brennan's father, might have been in that side as well. He certainly played for Otago. So. Uh, that was my first experience at that next level. Do you put much of those experiences down to, I suppose, the way you you coach the game nowadays? Probably, yeah. So I, you may not realise, but I, about that time we went, I went dairy farming, left school and went dairy farming, and and it doesn't really mix to be a dairy farmer and a and a full time cricketer. And even though you didn't play full time, there was a lot of a lot of weekends away with. So I ended up giving away rep cricket for a few years. So I actually basically not didn't give the game entirely away because I still play club cricket. But I I sort of got went away and had a bit of a life. So I uh, got married when I was twenty two, and 
my wife Annie and I had a family at a reasonably young age and so that kind of took the priority and so I guess I had a quite a good balance through the through my early twenties and, and came back and played a little bit of rep cricket in my late twenties but I think I probably had a really good balance about what what works and what doesn't work in life gen in general. So that meant that I when I got into coaching in, a, in the, my early thirties I I probably had a reasonably a wide appreciation of life and what people go through in life and it probably reflects in my coaching. So you made the move across from Matamata to Taranga at which age? So we were, I was in my early 30s, we we had a dairy farm and we'd been through some, I say tough times, there was some changes in market forces and government and stuff and, and so we worked really hard to for our dairy farm and then I got to the age of 32, 33 and thought do I want to be doing this when I'm 50 and so we actually looked around to see if we could buy a bigger property and um, subsequently we decided that we looked in the South Island, looked around uh, Australia and Tasmania and then came back and thought, well, maybe we'll do something different. So we, we in my mid-30s, 34, I think by the time we'd made the decision, we sold our dairy farm and, and um, came into Tapuki and bought an orchard. And basically it was a really nice house and it was a place to live and we thought it'd be a good place to raise our family. And at that, at that point I was able to get back into cricket, but I got back in, in the coaching path rather than rather than playing and uh, had the opportunity with Barpony Junior Cricket, I attended a Barpony Cricket Junior Cricket meeting and and there was some very good administrators there and uh, Paul Hickson and Chris Rapson who did a lot of work for Junior Cricket in the region and were able to put a part-time position in place around uh, Director of Coaching which I was lucky enough to get the job and yeah, that, that was sort of the start of my full-time cricket coaching career. What was the reason that you decided to go down the the coaching route rather than playing again is it, a, is it a time thing yeah probably a time thing like I I didn't enjoy being away from home I had we had four young children and I didn't enjoy being away from home and and by doing some coaching I found it was an easier path to follow so I got involved with coaching Northern Districts age group sides probably coached those for 10 or 12 years with primary um, junior secondary school secondary school and then eventually under 19 stuff and that period of time was like a four or five days away at a tournament was a lot simpler for me to do than than large periods of time away because so I had to practice as well to play so um, I went down the coaching path and I was fortunate enough to get opportunities and um, and then I was also fortunate enough in my job with uh, Plenty Cricket to be able to to develop some coaching programs through that period which which meant I didn't have to do all the coaching myself but it involved other people to do it as well so I was like from a clinical point of view, I became a little bit less hands-on and a little bit more organisational, and we're still able to maintain some coachings with the um, Northern District sides. Describe to me the kind of coaching philosophies that you you like to implement when I suppose you were coaching the juniors back then, and maybe how that's evolved and changed as as you've become older and more experienced as a coach. I'm a great believer in you need to have a, your own coaching philosophy and. Um, one of the things is that you need, and what I mean by that is, you, why do you coach? Like, what's the reason? Because when it all comes down to, if you haven't got anything to base your thinking on, then you actually will sway back and forward in your responses and the reactions when things go well or not so well. So, that's the first thing is you need to have a philosophy. And my philosophy is always about players getting better, and so how can they get better? And one of the ways they get better is that they work hard. Um, but equally they need to be given opportunities. So if you're, for instance, if you're a leg spin bowler, 
my philosophy is always that you need lots of overs. Secondly, you need to have fields that are appropriate to help you to not only get wickets but also protect you so that you don't lose confidence. In other words, when you start off, you have fielders in the right places. So if you bowl a bad ball, it goes for one rather than a four or a six. And if you go for a few, it doesn't mean that's the end of your opportunities because leg spinners, for example, need to be guys who bowl lots of overs because they get into the groove and they get to feel how things are going. So my, my philosophy has always been about people need the opportunity to develop and grow. And far too often, in my view, and I might be a little bit biased, but far too often as coaches, and certainly in junior cricket, they become reactionary to what's happening rather than proactive about providing opportunities for people to get better. So that's the first thing. Um, the other thing is that I, I'm a great believer in helping kids to find their own way. And if coaches direct them too much, direct the players too much, at the end of the day, the, the kids need to become their best, they need to become their best coach. In other words, they're the ones out there playing. So if they don't learn from experience that, you know, how to cope, the coach can't do it for them. So in mental numbers of tournaments, you see coaches rotating around the field giving instruction well to me that's actually uh, not only nonsensical but it's actually counterintuitive because it doesn't actually provide the, the, the guys the opportunity to grow from it so I'm big on, on self-learning and um, and I've got this sort of old theory that I work on that if someone's passionate about the game and there's a number of examples of guys that we'll probably talk about and that are passionate about it uh, if they're passionate about it, then they'll practice a lot, and if they practice a lot, then they'll get better, and if they get better, they'll have more success, which makes them more passionate. And you get this nice cycle going of um, providing information that helps them to become better. And if they, as I say, if they get better, then they'll be more successful, which they'll enjoy more, and, and then all of a sudden you've got some, some pretty good cricketers. Did you go into coaching your early coaching with these philosophies or have they kind of evolved over time as you've learned? No, no I, I certainly went in with some but I think what happens is as you grow and as you mature because I don't believe the philosophy you go into as a coach should be the same one that you have at the other end like I'm in my early 60s now and it's definitely changed but I'd expect it to change because I've changed but the reality is is that who you are needs to reflect what your philosophy is because you can't change a leopard spot so I don't care what anybody says at the end of the day when things don't go well or, or the team's not going as well you'll become who you'll revert back to type that's that's the philosophy that's just the way life is you might be able to glide over the, the, the smaller edges but at the end of the day you'll still be who you are but you do grow and mature as a person so as you get older and more mature you might become more, more grumpy I don't know or you might become <laughs> less grumpy but you will be who you are um but what you can learn as a coach is to actually um, try and be the best you can at what you do, just like a player does, and then you'll actually that will reflect in what you what you require from your players. Tell me a bit about, um, I suppose, people might refer to it as pigeonholing um, athletes at a young age to one direct sport, or even if you want to go specific to to cricket maybe pigeonholing them into one specific skill so they might be pigeonholed to being a bowler rather than a batsman or yeah, I'm, I'm a great believer you should never do that I believe that kids should play every sport they can obviously within reality you can't you can't play 10 sports in, in the winter or summer but if they're good footballers or they're good rugby players and they should do that in the winter they should play cricket uh, in the summer if that's their sport they should do all those things and 
if you do that, then you give the op because they all actually um, work together. So the skills you might learn as a rugby player about space and about vision and all those things will actually reflect on how you play your cricket. And so the more experiences you get, then the more holistic your skill becomes. And I think it. I think that far too often we pigeonhole people, and and I, it's a big anti that I have in my in my view of the way we we run things is that we at 13 or 14 we're saying this boy here will be an all black well that's ridiculous like at that stage all he is is a really good 13 or 14 year old rugby player and he might actually be a really good cricketer and you shouldn't tell parents or you shouldn't make kids make a decision then what they're going to be equally within the sport like got a good example in the northern districts region Graham Aldridge for instance who's the highest wicket taker in New Zealand first class cricket was a was a top order batsman until he was 17 or 18 and he started bowling and then he he bowled for a long long time firstly because his body was more mature with, with very few injuries but secondly he developed a different skill set and so it's very wrong to pigeonhole people at an early age if kids want to wicket keep bat and bowl I reckon great do all those things at some stage you'll make a call about what works best for you or what they want to what they enjoy the most but pigeonholing people at a young age either in a sport or within a skill within a sport I think it is actually uh, fraught I think it's something to be avoided Do you think it's got better or worse over the years from your experience? I think it's got worse I think that uh, there's more demands on young people young teenagers to pick a sport when they're 13, 14, 15 and it's not helped and this might sound controversial but it's not helped by the enthusiasm of, uh, of parents who see that their child might be the next Richie McCaw or might be the next uh, Kane Williamson or whatever and so I think the danger in that is putting so much emphasis on that that you end up becoming sick of the sport and maybe walk away from it and uh, and when in reality at the age of 24, 25 they might actually just be hitting their peak. From your experience is there a, a certain age bracket where you can identify elite talent? You certainly can, I think that well, certainly, with, for instance, with quick bowlers, I don't think quick bowlers uh, really develop until they develop physically, so therefore you can see something with them. Um, but the important thing is you don't over-bowl them, so they have a stress fracture when they're 17 or 18, which is something that's happened regularly. Batsmen, you can pick early on that they've got some certain skills, but keeping in mind that if they're a big 13-year-old, then they might be what I classify as a bully batsman. In other words, they can hit the ball harder than anybody else because they're bigger and taller or but by the time they're 18, people who may have passed them. A really good example of that is BJ Watling. I had him in a, in a primary school team when he was very small. He was Form 1, whichever year that is, Year 7. And we played Auckland in a, in a game. And it was a 50-over game. And at the end of the, the innings, he was 43 not out. He batted for 50 overs. And he was 43 not out. And he was a little guy. He couldn't hit the ball off the square. But he had technically... Very, very good, very, very, very good skills, and so you said, well, that boy, that guy, he mightn't score many runs now, but when he's 18, 19, 20, or 30, he's going to be a good player, mm-hmm. and he was. So I think you've got to be really careful that you don't don't make decisions about people based on physical size, but also not on mental aptitude, because mental aptitude can mature later for some than others. We've seen perhaps the last 24 months has been a bit of a debate around. Um, elitism and, and representative sport specifically in, in cricket and rugby in your opinion what what is the age you should start trying to push push kids to combine for rep teams and things like that 
Yeah, it's an interesting debate, isn't it? And certainly, um, I think uh, TV is probably, and certainly the ability of TV to be able to kids to be seen uh, has actually put more pressure on. Uh, I know first in rugby, uh, I'm not convinced that's a great idea. Being on being on TV that it provides kids the opportunity to with this big exposure. So I'm I'm kind of the view that you need to let kids be kids. And I don't know, I don't know what to put an age on it. For someone at 15 or 16 might be the age that you think, well, they're going to be a cricketer. Um, for others, it might be 19, 20. Um, the fear is for sports, if they don't grab them, then what happens is that they end up losing them. And and they say, well, okay, let's everybody together make a good decision that's best for the for the um, for the sport or for the or for the adult uh, for the adolescent child. But but unfortunately, no one trusts each other across sports, um, and so you end up having people that are actually tapped on the shoulder and say, come with me, because they don't want to lose them. And they might then, and the region might have a whole lot of other quick bowlers, for instance, or open side breakaways, but they still don't want to risk the fact that they might mm. lose them. So there's kind of this lack of trust between sports based around not what's best for the kid, but rather what they perceive as best for the sport or for the region. So it's it's a, it's a it's not a one-fit answer to it, but I think it's definitely something that needs to be continually brought to the forefront. And it relies on some pretty good administrators to make good decisions and some probably some reasonably mature parenting going on with with uh, the children's parents to understand that actually um, what you are as 17 and 18 doesn't mean what you're going to be when you're 25. Um, we'll probably touch more on a little bit in a second, but you've coached some, some big names. What do you think these players that have I suppose you'd say made it already. What do they do differently from players that might have had just as good or even more talent, but um, didn't quite, you know, crack it? Yeah, I guess. Well, should we talk names now? Or yeah, well, yeah, go for it. You've got a pretty guess, good resume. So the first one that I was involved with a young uh, when he was a youngster was Daniel Flynn. So uh, what Daniel had was that he was he was wasn't a big boy, but he. Um, he had an amazing ability to hit the ball into gaps, and so he had, so whereas other players would hit the ball well and hit it straight to a fielder, he hit it for force with the gap. So he had he had vision to see where spaces were. He was also very dedicated, and he worked really hard at his game. Didn't always flow his way, but he was equally very determined. So he worked hard at his game and made it into an ND side at a reasonably young age, and made it into New Zealand side. And we probably didn't see the best of Daniel Flynn at international levels because he probably didn't have consistency of selection. So he ended up batting at one, two, three, four, five, six, and even seven internationally for New Zealand. And he always did what was required for the team. And on another day, he could easily have gone out there and dominated international cricket if he'd been given some consistency. And that's not a criticism of why he was dealt with, it was more just an observation of what happened. So the other one that springs to mind, obviously, is Kane Williamson. So I saw Kane first time when he was um, standard four, which is year six. Um, and I immediately thought to myself, this lad here has got some talent. And he had been really well coached by his dad, Brett. And he had some uh, some great attributes, but one of the greatest ones was he was completely and utterly passionate about the game. So the little story I talked about before, because he was passionate, he wanted to get better. and the thing with Kane is that he only wanted to be better than what he was, 
himself rather than some people get hung up on being better than other people so they get selected. Kane just works on the theory and still does that he wants to be the best he can so that by being the best he can, because that's quite good anyway, mm. he continually gets better. And he was passionate, so he practiced hard, and the, the more he practiced, the better he got, the better he got, the more passionate he became. And so there's a nice cycle going on with him, and he's a, the obvious example of a, one of the best three or four players in the world. And and what he did have was this, uh, a really clear mind about being better. And if you work hard at being better, then you ultimately will be. So that was kind of, those are the two examples that I like to use. And, and they're both a little bit different. One's had probably more success than the other. It's not a reflection on either ability, but it's just a reflection on how things rolled. And there's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy that you play well, you get picked, and so you, you play well and you get picked, and then you get better coaching or whatever, and so the more opportunities you get, it's a bit like that leg spin bowl I talked about, does he bowl enough overs in Kane's case? He got to bat a lot, so he, because he got to bat a lot, he got better, and because he got better, he got to bat a lot. Um, but the underlying thing with him is passion and no little ability either, obviously. Um, if we go specifically to Kane now, can you just talk a bit about how, I suppose, that relationship with him evolved or even came about, to be fair? Yeah, so I was involved working for Bartony Cricket, I had a phone call from his uh, dad just wondering where he'd heard that I did a bit of coaching and could I give him a bit of hand so I lived at Tapuki at that time and, and he used to his mum used to bring him out and we used to do work at the Tapuki tennis court with tennis balls hour and after hour after hour and then after a while Kane would just ring me and it was always DJ what are you up to and that was <laughs> obviously the the message to me that we'd send me a text and that would be I want to practice and so I used to work with him a couple of times a week and obviously he had lots of other times that he was working with his dad at home and just over time we developed, uh, he, um, he enjoyed working with me and I certainly enjoyed working with him and we became um, yeah, just a good teamwork really and, and the thing about him is that I, I knew that at some stage he'd get other advice from other people and certainly as he got picked into rep sides he got plenty of advice, everybody um, got a thought and, but the thing that Kane always did was he'd come back to me and I didn't really mind if he did or not but he'd always come back to me and ask me what I thought and because he would like to have that one point of reference and I think that's really important for young kids is that they, they will get lots of advice given and cricket's a mind game and you can easily get lost in the mind games of, of not knowing what to listen to or what to accept and so it was and it wasn't a something I said oh you have to come back to me or anything it was just that he preferred to come back and say what do you think about that I don't think that's really right what do you think and I'd say well let's talk about it let's see if it's got some relevance and and we'd sort of toss around and Kane's a visual and a uh, kinesthetic learner so he likes to actually see things and he likes to um, feel it uh, he's not a listener that a person that learns by being told he's a, he's a hands-on person and that's the first thing if you're going to coach anybody is you need to understand your athlete and so understanding your athlete means how they learn because it's no good giving a whole lot of instruction if that's not how the person learns so that was the first thing that developed as I understood how he learned and then we'd provide situations where he'd, he'd learn and I remember when he came when he obviously had great success at a young age and in actual fact his first game for ND he had he got a, uh, got a pair I think against Auckland had to face Andre Adams in the dark and got given an LBW by Billy Bowden when he 
uh, may have been inside edge, not that I'm <laughs> putting Billy in, but um, and then at a later, in the second inning he got, might have got one. So he had a he had a bit of a rude awakening facing Andre Adams batting at three as a 17 year old VND under under difficult light in Auckland in a four in a three day game. So it wasn't easy. But the thing about him is that he had this ability to say, okay, how can I do that better? How can I learn? How can I improve? First game he played for Bay of Plenty, um, Pat Malcolm, who was involved with ND, and I had discussions about what stage Kane should play for Bay of Plenty. And he played for them as a 15-year-old, and his first game was down at Taupata one-day tournament. And um, he went into bat, and the bowler was Daniel Vittori. First ball he got on his toes, he flicked into the leg side, could have gone for four another day, hit the guy's boot, and no runs, second ball, LBW. And uh, came off the field, and his first instinct was to come around and sit down next to Pat and say, Pat said, are you okay there, Kane? And he goes, yeah, yeah, no, I just needed to play that shot better. Played the right shot, just didn't, didn't do it properly. So right from then he had an understanding, it's not about the success of the, of the result, it's about the process to get to where you need to get. And that's something that he had from a young age. He, um, he had this ability to say, well, actually, I'm not going to be defined by the last ball or the last shot or the last innings. So if he played and missed, well, so I played and missed, but the next ball was the most important one. And he had that amazing ability to switch on and switch off. And that was something that I recognised really early on, that he didn't, was he had moments where he wondered whether he was doing the right thing because he didn't have success. Um, he had enough successes in between those to develop that process, that process of understanding. So, um, yeah, he's pretty special right from the start. Talk to me a bit more about that process because that sounds really important. Um, we talk about players, players knowing what the sh- what they should do, but not always being able to do it necessarily. Um, but Kane's a bit different, isn't he? Yeah, well, he he's got this ability. Like the World Cup last year was a good example. Is that is that they were difficult wickets in England. The talk before that tournament was that they're going to be 320, 330 um, runs would be would be required to win games, and it became quite obvious after a period of time that that if you scored 250 or 240, even you're in the game. Kane recognised that, and the team obviously recognised that that's why you had to score. So, by recognising it and actually accepting it, are not necessarily the same thing. So, you could say, okay, that we need 240, but you still go about it the same way. But accepting that and then working back from that to a point where what do I have to do to get to that is a different skill altogether. And not everybody's got it. So a lot of people will look at the problem that's ahead of them and, and try and work out how to handle the problem in the moment, whereas Kane's looking at the end result and saying, this is where I need to be, so let's work back here and handle it ball by ball. And that's different. What's your best Kane Williamson story? Um... Interesting, there's a few, but I think the thing that it made me realise what a special person he was when when he was 12 years old, or might have been 13, he played in a tournament down at Gisborne, and he, um, his dad was looking after the team, and Brett's a top man, and he'd given everybody, giving everybody opportunities, and and Kane, Doug Bracewell was in the team as well, and I think the first two games, Kane and Doug may have opened or batted at one and three or something, anyway, they, they were cleaning, and Kane had scored a century every game, and maybe day three, day four maybe, they swapped the batting order around and against Waikato Valley and they were in trouble. And they were something like 60 for seven and Kane came in batting at nine, or might have been batting at eight. And he chipped away and got a few runs and he got um, 
and then they were suddenly nine down from about 90 and the, and the tally ender came in and they, they were batting fish in this game and the tally ender came in and Kane talked to him and they batted and they batted and they batted and they batted and at the end of the with about two balls to go Kane scored a century got his put up a century and the guy at the other end was about seven not out and Kane had faced the majority of the balls and they ended up getting about 230 which was more than enough in the game but as they came off the field the players stood uh, the Bar Plenty team stood there to salute Kane off the field and Kane turned around and let the other boy go off first and gave him a clap and a pat on the back and right then I knew that he understood that the game was more important than him that he couldn't have achieved that without the other boy's input and that he recognised right from the start that you respect all members of your team and nothing's changed from that point on to this point in world cricket like he's the most respected player in the game uh, he's no one's got a bad word to say about him and he's just he is just Kane you know that's the way he is and he understands the importance of the game he understands the history of the game um, spoke to an Indian journalist after the World Cup final and he told me uh, he rang me to have a chat and he told me that he'd been a journalist for f 35 years and he's never ever heard a press conference like that after the World Cup final where New Zealand lost but didn't lose he's never seen a captain get a standing ovation as he left the stage you know, and that's a reflection and a mark of the man just want to go briefly back to you mentioned before you're doing a lot of tennis ball work for Merley yeah. what was the uh, reasoning behind that? so we used to throw uh, just underarm tennis balls and because I'm a great believer there's, there's a couple of things that are non-negotiable on cricket one is that you have a solid base when you hit the ball and the second thing is you hit the ball under your eyes. And to hit the ball under your eyes, you need to make sure that you have a strong front shoulder. So those things are the key things for me. So I used to throw tennis balls to Kane, or underarm tennis balls, because tennis ball is quite hard to hit if you don't hit it late under your eyes. And so we used to do all the work, and we'd eventually move on to hard balls. But if you couldn't get it right with the tennis ball, or sorry, if you can get it right to a tennis, with a tennis ball, you'll get it right with a cricket ball. And it's the same with catching. We used to do lots of... Um, teams that I operated would do tennis racket and tennis balls because if you can catch a tennis ball you can catch a cricket ball so it's all about grooving the skill and the more you do it the better you become you don't have time to make a decision when you're out in the game oh we need to do this and this and this it needs to become instantaneous and so the more you do that and groove that groove that skill and even when you're playing first class cricket we'd, in the off season we'd still go back and do a whole lot of that underarm stuff and just get the feel of it so that it's right would you say that's a big reason he plays the ball probably the latest in the world? Oh, he definitely plays it late. And and I hear people say, oh, he plays the ball really late. But actually, that's, I keep thinking, well, actually, that's what you need to do. <laughs> and so he does play it late, and it's, and it's, and it's something that's grooved into him. Uh, and the other thing is, is he's got such good balance. And if you've got balance with your weight slightly forward when you hit the ball, you will play it later anyway. It's when your weight's not in a good position that you end up hitting the ball ahead of yourself. Do you get nervous when you see him batting, in person and on TV? Funnily enough, I do actually. It's quite strange. My wife laughs at me like we. Um, I'm a little bit superstitious, so um, I, normally if I I don't always see him play, but if I do see him play, watching him on TV, if I tend to just sit where I am if he's going well, and not move. <laughs> <laughs> Which everybody in my family thinks is a bit weird because it's, what I do is pretty irrelevant. So the other day, my wife and I just come back from biking the Alps to Ocean and. And while I was biking on that ride, he scored 250 odd against uh, against uh, the Western East and Hamilton. So I think the curse of me moving at the time of 
<laughs> Open batting is gone now, so I just get on with it. Perhaps some more bike rides needed yeah, in the future. Yeah, maybe I'm have to keep moving. So um, anyway, did you see Kane go through any challenges as his cricket journey was progressing through the age group scenes? Yeah, absolutely. There were uh, people think he's always scored runs, but he's had moments where he hasn't. But the thing about Kane and and we and he developed this skill without doubt was that he he tried to make sure he had a process. So if he's doing things properly and well. And feeling okay if you score runs is, ne- is not necessarily the the result of, of of a bad performance. It might just be that the bowler is actually allowed to bowl well, and the fielder is allowed to take great catches. And so sometimes that happens. Um, but the thing about him is he understood the process. He understood that if you do things right long enough, you would have success. Was there an age where I suppose everyone's kind of uh, everyone's got their own story about Kane around the area, but was there a moment or an age that you thought he's going to play for New Zealand one day? Yeah, when he was about 12. That Back to that game you're talking about there? Yeah, yeah. I, and I actually commented to people in my circles that not only will he be a, a New Zealand player, but he'll be our greatest player, and he'll be one of the greatest players in the world when he retires. I want to talk a bit more about Bay Oval now, because that's probably... I suppose the most relevant journey for you at the moment would you be yeah. fair to say? Yeah, so a number of years ago I chose to move away from working directly for cricket and get back, and get back involved with the Bay Oval because it was part of uh, part of what I was involved with when I was working with Bartony Cricket so um, Kelvin Jones who's the CEO of, or the general manager of the Bay Oval and I were working for Bay Cricket at the time and we saw an opportunity or saw a need for a, a, a ground in this region because we'd lost first class cricket from Blake Park so we saw the opportunity and Kelvin's a visionary and um, we worked really well together and he saw a piece of ground up on top of the top field at Blake Park that we could possibly turn into a, a ground of some kind and, and we have so um, through that period it's been a, I'm not sure now maybe 15-16 years probably the journey and we worked away at it uh, and so when I left cricket I actually came back and worked for Kelvin Kelvin went and worked for the Oval so we separated cricket away from the Oval uh, and I operated for Bapani Cricket while operating the cricket side of things and he continued the development on the Oval and then eventually I left cricket uh, looking for other things to do and got back involved with the Oval so um, we've been on a pretty big journey together and and uh, with good success and it's a f- fantastic ground but we're always looking to see things improve. That's a that's a long story, very short. Let's get into some, some of the early stages. What were the challenges? I suppose there would have been a lot of dealings with council yeah, and the council were very good in that they gave us a bit of space to, to build and, um, and they've contributed some money towards the toilet block in the first instance. So what we did was, for those that don't know the ground, we actually had got a deal with a, with a roading company that came in and took away sand and used it at a, at a, um, on a roading project out by Papamoa. So that, that created the basin. We chose to go down the path of Cooch going on the outfield, which is a phenomenally quick outfield. I'm a bit biased, but I think it's probably <laughs> the quickest outfield in probably the world, really. It's extremely quick. And then over time, we've managed to add in a pavilion. When we first started off, we had tents for players to get changed, and then we had uh, some portacoms and even a container at one stage, and then we eventually got a um, got a shed, and then we got a, uh, a pavilion, and then we've managed to get side screens up with... Um, media boxes in and then lights and then a scoreboard 
yeah, and it's just we've just chipped away, and it's been a, a journey of um, some length, but it's certainly been a rewarding one. Must be a great feeling for you every time you see you're just talking about the pavilion goes in, the lights go up, and the sight screens go up. Every time something like that, it's almost like another another box ticked for the ground. That must be quite a rewarding feeling. It is, yeah. Kevin and I talk often about you know when we're going to retire, and I'm a bit older than him, so I might retire first. But you know, <laughs> what are the, what would you really like? And well, we'd like to get the pavilion because we've actually got plans for the next stage of the pavilion. So might be great to have that done, and maybe retire then, and then and then. Um, or maybe an indoor centre as well, and then you know, so it just kind of goes on. But we keep going, and uh, it's uh, every year is a little bit different. We've done a few more jobs this last twelve months, and you said I'm cricket have now um, decided to make a uh, high performance training area here uh, with a with a covered glass house, which over some grass wicket. So that's uh, that that facility is sort of two thirds complete now. We just need to lay the wicket, so it just continues to grow, and it's a really rewarding. And if you'd said sort of 15 years ago, this is what the ground would look like, it'd be hard to believe. But it's um, it's a fantastic spot, and it's a great. And the players love coming here, and we've actually got a number of black caps live here, so it's quite advantageous to have them here as well. Um, you, from what I understand, before Jared Carter, who we actually had on a couple of episodes ago, were were doing the grounds before. We were, yeah. Calvin and I started off when we we had the clay laid and. And Jared actually at that point worked for New Zealand cricket, and he used to come around. and It was actually Jared who came and gave us uh, the sign off on the ground that that it was up to speed to use. And at that stage, we I think we may have had the picket fence in, but I'm not quite sure. But anyway, Jared turned up one day, and it's pretty important that he thought we were up to speed. And probably um, one of the stories you're probably going to ask me anyway, but it was we'd had a lot of rain, and the wicket was complete bog hole it hadn't actually been rolled very well when it was put in and when it was laid by the contractor and so we covered it up with um, a cover and put it over the top and then when Jared came here and it was pouring with rain it's got great great drainage here so he didn't really venture that far out and he said oh how's the wicket looking and we said oh yeah no it's good we just got the cover on to make sure that it <laughs> doesn't get too wet but in actual fact it was a complete uh, swamp and if you'd driven a tractor over your body would have got stuck <laughs> so um, Jared gave us a sign off and um Subsequently, we um, approached him a few years later when we were looking for a full-time turf manager and he was more than happy to come up and um, he applied for the role and, and we were able to employ him as turf manager. What's what's next for the ground that you mentioned before the uh, extension on the pavilion, but are there any other things kind of see over there to our, to our left of our nice view? There's, there's that big training structure just gone in. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, so it's a... Um, it's a facility that New Zealand Cricket have invested in, and um, it's it's a greenhouse, so it's a plastic house, but it's got remove uh, the roof uh, moves open, and also the walls come up on motors so that it can have all the characteristics of normal climate to help the grass to grow. So it'll be uh, it'll be 24 strips on there uh, with the run-ups in the middle, so um, 65 metres long and maybe 28, 30 metres wide. It's a big facility and it will hopefully be well, I'm sure it'll be well used. Um, we've got a final plan on the rest of the pavilion is, is to continue over, basically half, uh, two thirds as big again as what it is now. Uh, we'll have a big um, area there for, for events. Uh, that's ultimately the finishing of the pavilion. We've got a little bit more media work to do at the far end of the, of the um, facility, just to complete that area. 
and the other thing is we'd like to do is build an indoor centre with our official ground that might double up as a um, double up as an event centre for match day as well. So those are kind of the last three or four things to complete. But um, Colin's a lateral thinker and he, he's probably got other ideas as well that he'll come up with. Um, so he bounces ideas out there and I think about them and uh, sometimes I say yes and he does it and sometimes I say no and he does it. Sometimes he says I say yes and, he, and we work and agree together. So it's, it's good fun <laughs> we come up with all sorts of ideas but um, like anything it needs to be funded and it's not always easy to, to fund things that are um, required and particularly under the current environment with um, COVID and all the other various things. There's a, uh, things are a little bit tighter in the from a sponsorship point of view, but we're very appreciative of the number of sponsors we have here to help and bring this ground to to the stage it's at. We've got some great people here that have worked here for a lot of years, a bit of a labour of love, we've had volunteers, we've had all sorts of people come in because they just love the game. And, and going back to that original comment I made at the start about you, you work with people who are passionate about the game and those people might end up not becoming international cricketers, but they might become those people who are the volunteers and clubs, they might be the people who who um, become the, the ones that come and help on game day. They might be whatever, but or they might their children might become the next group of cricketers. But the key is that they have passion for the game and as administrators and as coaches of, of our our responsibility is to feed that passion and help them become the best contributors to the game that we can. Let's talk a bit more about that because that's quite a quite a good point. This ground is not as heavily funded by the council as other international venues in the country, perhaps. Correct. But there are a lot of great volunteers and great sponsors, and Calvin does a great job getting grant funding. Do you want to touch on a bit more about that? Yeah. So it's, there's been a, it is it's not a it's not a council ground. It's actually a, a lease space that's run by the Bay Oval Trust. So um, we do fight a little bit to get enough funds to make it work, but. The, 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 the downside of that is that we can't always get what you want when you want but the thing is when it is achieved it is achieved with a fair degree of of um, I suppose satisfaction to start with but also we it's well thought through and so therefore we've tried to do things in a logical manner hence the reason we were able to add on to the pavilion because it was always designed to become added on to same with the lights same with the banking and we two years three years ago we doubled the banking size on one side and that was because there was some fill available from a building site down the road. So it's a matter of being flexible enough to take advantage of those opportunities, but still with a greater plan in place. And volunteers are the key to this key to this ground. We've had a lot of people who have offered their time and services. We've had a, a really good uh, Bay Oval Trust that have been proactive and getting out of the community and getting support. We've had people come in who have over the years painted the picket fence who have offered to come in on match day and help out and you can't do it without those people and as I said to start those are the people who had probably good experiences in the game when they were younger and just want to be involved because this international ground has brought a huge amount of people to the region it's actually probably the biggest um, opportunity for overseas people to see this region like when we had India here last year you know uh, and I heard a figure, I can't remember what it was, the number of TV sets in India that were seeing this game, right through Asia. It's, it's a prominent uh, opportunity to pr- uh, promote the region. And um, we've got black caps here, and the kids that come down and watch the black caps train, they watch Kane and uh, Trent and Wags and 
and Colin de Grandma would come here and do their, do their fitness work out here on the ground. We have the New Zealand Sevens just over the uh, back on Blake One and they come and do their sprint work on the ground. We have athlete, athletics, uh, young athletics uh, runners come in here and do their sprint training on the ground as well because we're more than happy it's a community ground. So all those things add to the, the value of this, this, this field, it's not just a cricket ground. We'll just finish on um, something that's coming up very soon. We're only, what, three, just yeah, just over three weeks away now from from the second ever test match at this ground, but it's quite a special one because it's the Boxing Day test match. Yeah, that's exciting, isn't it? Um, and um, hopefully all the COVID stuff doesn't interfere, but we fantastic looking forward to a Boxing Day test at the Open. I think it will be, um, we obviously had a very successful test last year with the in- England team, and a great game, and a game that was New Zealand won even better in the last session of the last day so you can't get much better than that it'll be pretty hard to top that to be honest with the Barmy army here and um, but Pakistan here on Boxing Day and it is a holiday region so hopefully the crowds will be good and we'll get an opportunity for some good weather and it's probably the pinnacle really isn't it to have a Boxing Day test and uh, every game we get here we're appreciative of and New Zealand cricket have been very supportive and it's fantastic that we've been given this prime probably the prime game here this year um, of the season really a boxing day test so um, hopefully we get get um, an occasion that's fitting the, the opportunity we've been given. Dave thanks so much for coming on it's been great talking to you um, I'm sure you've you've educated a lot of people on different subjects here and it's just awesome to be able to have this opportunity. Cheers Carl thanks for the opportunity and appreciate it.